Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 61 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. And welcome again, Moira. Hi, Dave. Hi, everyone. So the theme for this podcast is lucid dreaming. And it's something that's really become into the popular realm with some movies around the concept of lucidity during dreaming and on some of the Be A Better You life hacking sites, it's lucid dreaming will give you great insights. Is that something you've seen, Moira? Yeah, well, I must admit, I, I don't know, I was I living under a rock, but I until maybe 10 years ago, I don't think I even knew the term. Is that bad to admit? It well, maybe come maybe just shows you didn't take enough drugs when you were younger, Moira. <laughs> well, maybe it's just more in my world as a sleep professional. It just didn't come across my desk as a, you know, talking. It's, it's more sort of people asking more outside of my work, like about lucid dreaming. But I want, is that the same? It's, I wonder if everyone else listening is the same. And it's as, you know, the movies, it's really, you know, Inception and... Um, it's just become much more interesting to people, I think, yeah. and it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's pop culture. Uh, but as we'll hear, it's certainly not pop culture with the, the really high level research that's being done at the moment. And that's a really good point. So it's not something that comes into our clinical practice, but this is really an area where, in some respects, the clinical and academic practice of sleep medicine is almost disconnected from where the public's at around this because it's something that's quite interesting and quite at the forefront in the public realm when people ask us in our social lives about dreaming and lucidity, but we don't get asked in our practice. So in trying to bridge this gap between the public realm of what is lucid dreaming and how to think about it and some of the science, we spoke to Dr. Benjamin Baird, who's a research scientist specialising in the study of human cognition and consciousness at the Centre for Sleep and Consciousness at University of Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast, Ben. Great to be here. So how do you define lucid dreaming? Yeah, so lucid dreaming is, there's been different um, definitions that have been given, but overall now the consensus is that you are aware of the fact that you're dreaming. So there's broad consensus around that kind of minimalist definition, simply aware of the fact that you're dreaming while you're dreaming. So if you're aware that you're dreaming, you're lucid. Uh, Often there are other aspects that come along with that awareness, such as the ability to control your actions in the dream. And interestingly, also episodic memory. So you seem to also regain your memory for your waking life, including intentions for things you wanted to do in the dream. Um, So there's a kind of constellation of phenomenological features that seem to generally we found in our research come on together. But sometimes you can just have the awareness without those other features and you would still be lucid according to according to what most people would would say today. And although today we think about it in a neuroscience sort of way, historically, how's this been thought about um, in human civilization and cultures? Yeah, so that's a big question. And there there is a whole history of how lucid dreaming has been described in Western literature and also in Eastern cultures has a very rich history, really going all the way back to classical India. And you can trace it all the way back to several centuries before the common era in texts known as the Upanishads, in which uh, lucid dreaming, the term itself wasn't used, that came along much later, but uh, there were descriptions of awareness, uh, different kinds of experiences of sleep awareness already that early on. 
And that developed into a whole rich tradition in Tibetan Buddhism, which is uh, often referred to as dream yoga, which is something of a, a misnomer today. We think of yoga as the different postures that people do. Um, but actually, it's a whole set of meditative practices. And uh, lucid dreaming is kind of the platform, if you like, the first step. They called it apprehending the dream state. That was the terminology that came online. Oh, and you know, roughly the seventh century CE with writings from um, famous teachers such as Padman Sababa um, and others. And so very clearly, very explicitly, they were talking about the same kind of thing that we mean today uh, with lucid dreaming. Of course, they didn't use that exact term. That term didn't really come on until uh, the 18th, 19th century with writings from French and, and Dutch um, researchers, scientists, and writers, uh, Saint-Denis, and also Frederick von, von Aden. And uh, there's some debate about exactly who came up with the term first. Actually, Saint-Denis and his, his writings uh, used the term, but he used it more to mean vivid dreams. And this was in the, the mid-1800s. And then it was um, a little bit later on, von Aden really consolidated the term lucid dreaming to refer to what we mean today that explicit awareness of being in a dream while it's happening. And so you get these sprinklings of discussion of the topic here and there, but it's fairly sparse. So there's a few writers, you know, in, in Europe around those around that time here and there. Uh, you can trace it in the West, though, all the way back to Aristotle. There's interestingly uh, his, his treatise on dreams in which he mentions several times um, having s some kind of knowledge the, that you're dreaming while you're dreaming. Um, so it's, it's fairly rudimentary. It's not very well fleshed out, but he, he does at least mention it. Traces really all the way back to the, the classical Greeks. And there's a lot of uh, work coming up in the last century where it's really taken off. And then in the last really 40, 45 years or so with a scientific interest in the topic, really, I think, come more into the public imagination. This is only very, very recently. So I think the situation was very different. Um, we're just, you know, a, you can think of it as some select uh, communities, uh, particularly monks, people doing intensive contemplative practice in Eastern cultures, uh, but for, for really a select few. And in the West, just some uh, sprinklings here and there among various writers and, and psychiatrists and scientists, but not very well known at all. And so it's a very, very different situation today where now we have films like Inception and Waking Life. And it seems like everyone knows about the topic. You can read about it at the checkout stand and there's lots of scientific publications. So uh, it's really kind of taken off, I'd say, in the last, last 40 years or so. Even at the beginning of the scientific study of lucid dreaming in the West, it was regarded with some skepticism. In, in the sleep science community, people weren't sure what to make of it. It was quite novel. Philosophers were skeptical that you could be aware that you were dreaming while you're dreaming, because how can you be aware and asleep at the same time? That seemed like very paradoxical. The science really firmly objectively showed that this is possible in really interesting ways, which we can get into. And I think that really shifted the dynamic around this topic. I was going to ask, how did you personally become interested in lucid dreaming or this, this level of research into dreams? Uh, I wasn't a natural lucid dreamer. So many people, now that we recruit for our studies, for example, they report that they've always had lucid dreams. So since they were very little, 
uh, they, for one reason or another, one of the things we're researching actually, they, they just have lucid dreams all the time. They're aware of the fact that they're dreaming routinely, sometimes once a month or several times uh, a week, but it can be multiple times per night even. There's some people that are just lucid all the time or have at least many of these experiences during childhood and they become interested in that way. That wasn't the case for me. I didn't have my first lucid dream until university. And at that time I was getting very interested in, in consciousness more generally. And so I think that the general picture for me is I became very interested in consciousness. I got interested in studying consciousness, which I'm now doing from a scientific point of view. Um, but during my years in university, I was up on the internet late one night reading about consciousness related topics. And I stumbled across the Lucidity Institute website, uh, which is the website of Dr. Stephen LeBurge, who's now a, a close collaborator and colleague. Lucidity Institute is one of the major uh, nonprofit organizations that have studied lucid dreaming a long time. They had a whole FAQ about what lucid dreaming is and lots of information and resources. And it was the first time I'd ever heard of it. And again, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, even 20 years ago, I think the situation was very different. It wasn't as talked about. We didn't have these major blockbuster films. It wasn't as much in the public imagination. So I'd, I'd never heard of it at all. And it, it kind of, frankly, just blew my mind. I had never considered that it could be possible that you could be aware in that way during dreaming sleep. And I was so shocked by that idea and that I'd never thought about it that that night I had my very first one, my very first lucid dream after reading about it. And this is something that we do see um, now with, that uh, it, people hear about it for the first time. It's so salient in their mind that they have their first experience of lucid dreaming uh, after hearing about it. So that, that is a common thing, relatively common. But after I had my first one, it was just off to the races because it was so interesting. Uh, it, it just felt like this whole other continent, this whole other domain that was uh, ripe for exploration and really wasn't being talked about, wasn't really being studied very much. And so just really captured my imagination. And I went off um, and tried to find a way to do research on this topic. At the time, there wasn't anyone in the United States who was doing mainstream academic work on the topic within science. And so I studied topics that were closely related. I tried to build up a skill set in psychology and neuroscience so that I could work on this. I worked on topics that I was also interested in, such as uh, mind wandering, uh, like a kind of daydreaming, um, things like meditation and metacognition, various aspects of, of human cognition that I think have interesting connections with this, uh, you know, and also my broad interest in consciousness. I have finally uh, found a, a way to study it. And I'm now, you know, over the last seven years, it's really been my focus, focus of my research. I'm now at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And there's a fantastic institute here, which I'm very proud to be a part of, which is the Center for Sleep and Consciousness at UW-Madison. One of the things I was curious about is when you're doing this research, how can you tell if someone's actually lucid dreaming at the time? You know, if you're taking some measures, what's sleep versus lucid dreaming sleep? And how do you pick those? Yeah, it's a great question. This is such a fascinating uh, topic because, as I mentioned, it really shifted the thinking around lucid dreaming 40 years ago because, again, there were some people were skeptical and sleep scientists and philosophers were going, hey, how, you know, how can this be possible? 
you have to be aware and asleep, it doesn't make any sense. And along comes a young researcher, uh, Dr. Stephen LaBerge, who was at Stanford at the time, working in one of the major sleep laboratories in, in the US, uh, uh, William DeMint's lab at Stanford. And they'd been doing a lot of work on dreaming and eye movements. And so they found that quite often there's a very close correlation. They would wake people up uh, and say, just now, what were you dreaming about? And they would look at the pattern of eye movements that was happening before they woke people up. And often they found this really these really interesting connections. And so a dramatic example was that they had a participant in the sleep lab and uh, you can see on the electrooculogram the uh, measurement of the eye movements that the, the participant looked left, right, left, right, left, right, about 12 times in a row, back and forth like that. They woke the, the person up and said, just now, what were you dreaming about? And he said he was standing on the side of a ping pong table watching a long volley of the ping pong ball going back and forth, back and forth. And so uh, from this and many other kinds of examples like this, that gave uh, Stephen LeBurge the idea to say, hey, wait a minute, the physical rotations of the eyes are correlated with where the dreamer is looking in the dream, the gaze uh, direction within the dream. And he thought to himself, huh, well, if I'm lucid, I can look in a specific pattern, looking in a specific direction within the dream, which will result in a specific pattern of eye movements. And the experimenter and myself, before I go to sleep, can agree upon whatever pattern that might be. So it could be tonight, we want you to look left, right, left, right, up, down, left, right, in a very distinct pattern like that. And so while the participant is being monitored with the EEG electroencephalogram, measuring the brainwave activity, as well as what we call polysomnography, all the different physiological channels which are used to determine that the participant is currently in a specific stage of sleep. So eye movements, uh, the chin myogram, which um, drops very flat. There's a characteristic atonia in certain stages of sleep. All of this is used to definitively show this person is asleep and they're in such and such a stage of sleep. What they found was that uh, the participants were able to make these objective eye movement signals, which showed up on the polysomnography uh, while they were objectively asleep and they were making these, these objective markers uh, so we could see that they're fully asleep, no question about it. And we can see that they're, they're making these eye movement signals while they're asleep. And so that provided objective evidence that people could be aware and able to communicate the fact that they were aware in real time to an external observer. And so this has really taken off and it's now the gold standard, which is being used in laboratories all over the world to not only scientifically, objectively validate that people become lucid in a dream, but this whole technique of the eye signaling can also be used to timestamp, if you like, the beginning and end of experimental tasks as well. So people can give an eye movement signal to say, okay, I'm aware, I'm in a dream now. Uh, this is me marking my onset of becoming lucid. And then they can also go on to make an eye movement signal to say, I'm starting that task you wanted me to try in the dream. And one of the, the things that was done, just as a quick example, was having people count to 10. So, you know, in Inception, for example, there's this whole notion that, you know, uh, you can live a whole lifetime within an hour of, of waking time, so to speak. And so is there some kind of psychological time dilation in dreams? And so they addressed this question at Stanford and they, they had people estimate 10 seconds. You can make an eye movement, count to 10, make another eye movement. In fact, 
it lines up identically if you have people do that same task while awake. So sorry, inception time dilation turns out to be to be wrong, but uh, no one has yet looked at the dream within a dream. So uh, that's still an open question, if you like. So is there any characteristics uh, of people who are able to be more prone to be able to do this better than others? There has been a lot of research to try to determine, uh, to look at different kinds of personality or psychological dimensions that may differ between so-called frequent lucid dreamers, people that seem to have lucid dreams all the time, versus people that have lucid dreams rarely or never. And overall, I think the, the findings are pretty mixed. So I don't have you know, really something really solid to say that yes, this kind of personality characteristic within the, the one of the most well-known measurements of uh, personality, for example, is the, the, in psychology is the big five. And one of those dimensions is openness to experience. That seems to be one that's replicated quite a few times is that individuals who have frequent lucid dreams seem to be higher on trait openness. Uh, I'd like to see more replication and more research on that topic. It's a very interesting one. Um, we've done some work looking at the physiology. And so the question is, it's a really interesting question, of course, that arises. Say, we know that there are these people that have lucid dreams, as I, as I noted earlier, sometimes every night. And they don't, they're not even training to have lucid dreams. They just have them all the time. And... The question is, what's different about these people? And so in a recent study, we, we wanted to ask, are there any differences in the structure of the brain in these uh, so-called frequent lucid dreamers? And we, we tested um, these very high frequent lucid dreamers, so people that were having them on the order of every other night to every night. And we didn't actually find any differences in brain structure between the groups. We did find some differences in brain connectivity between certain areas, in particular areas of the prefrontal cortex with areas of the lateral parietal cortex. And so this prefrontal lateral parietal connection might be important. Um, so there could be some intrinsic differences, in other words, in the connectivity of the brains uh, of, of frequent lucid dreamers that may give them a proclivity to have lucid dreams. Um, I think that's plausibly part of the story. Uh, so there, uh, there, there probably are personality differences. There, there probably are some intrinsic differences in physiology, in particular of the brain. Uh, there could be differences in brain chemistry, although no one's looked at that quite yet. Uh, it's plausible there are also differences in characteristics during sleep. Um, one hypothesis is that there may be more arousal, more signs of physiological arousal in some individuals who have lucid dreams frequently, but I don't, I don't think that's true for all of them. If you look at the population as a whole, roughly 50% of people have never had a lucid dream in their entire lifetime. And then another significant chunk of that pie is people that have had lucid dreams just a few times. So maybe once or a couple times. And so, and then yet we have this, this group of people that are having them almost every night spontaneously. And so it's a really interesting question for future research to try to understand uh, the characteristics of, of those individuals. So how do you change somebody, or can we change somebody from a maybe never or occasional lucid dreamer into a skilled lucid dreamer? Because you know, we, in a clinical sense, think there'd be some really helpful applications for that. Can you change them? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess one thing I should emphasize here is that there are these two groups, these two buckets. 
One is people who have lucid dreams naturally, which some people say, or spontaneously, without doing any kind of training, they have lucid dreams all the time. Another group are people who have lucid dreams more frequently because they've trained to have them. And so the question is, how do you do that effectively? One of the first techniques that was developed was called the mnemonic induction of lucid dreams, or MILD, uh, which was again developed by Stephen LaBerge in that early period of research on the topic. And um, what was found was that if you could set your prospective memory, that is your memory to do something in the future, this is the same kind of memory you use if, say, when leaving work today, I want to remember to pick up milk on the way home. I say to myself, well, on, the, on that drive home tonight, I want to remember to stop at the store to pick up milk. And he was able to do some training and uh, found that doing those kinds of exercises with setting your intention, setting your prospective memory, people could increase the frequency of lucid dreams they had. But most people find that these kinds of purely cognitive techniques, they can increase the frequency of lucid dreams, but by themselves, for some people have limited capacity to really boost it up to the level that they would like. And so there are a whole lot of other techniques and technologies which have been explored over the years. One of the kind of cool ones are these sleep gadgets and so the sleep masks, which are essentially like a regular sleep mask, except it has LEDs, often three LEDs on each side and a computer chip embedded in the mask. So it detects when you're in REM, rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep, which is the stage of sleep in which most dreaming occurs. And if it detects you're in REM sleep, it'll then flash those LEDs over your closed eyes while you're asleep. And we're currently doing some more research on this. What we, found, what we find often is that the flashing lights become incorporated into the ongoing dream. So you have a dream of flashing lights. I was fortunate enough to try this at a retreat in Hawaii on lucid dreaming. You got to use this mask for a couple nights during the, the testing phase of research. And just as an example, I had one dream which I was stuck in traffic and the two brake lights in front of me were flashing red. Another example, I was in Las Vegas and I was playing the slot machines and uh, all the lights were flashing, flashing, flashing. And neither time did I recognize the cue, but this is the idea is that it's a consistent mnemonic cue or a memory cue. You can, you can use those techniques for prospective memory to say, hey, next time I see those flashing lights, that's my reminder. And I, I train with this. I use it just for a couple of nights. But if you can imagine if you're, if you have a sleep mask like this and you're using it consistently for a period of months or even years, you can train yourself and train your brain to get very good at recognizing that cue. After a while, it just becomes like uh, just so easy. Like, oh, there's the flashing lights. I'm dreaming. And so you can use that technique. There have been uh, several studies trying to induce lucid dreaming. That is basically just kind of flip a switch and make people lucid by altering what's happening in the brain. And a couple of studies in the last five years or so have looked at different methods of uh, elect non-invasive electrical stimulation of the brain. And unfortunately, it's coming more and more clear that those techniques currently just aren't very effective. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they won't be in the future. And I think it is an interesting direction for future research. And yet another approach uh, that's been taken in our recent research is uh, pharmacology. And so there are substances which can alter the chemistry of the brain. 
during, particularly during REM sleep, which make lucid dreaming much more likely. Another technique is so-called sleep interruption. It's now called wake back to bed. You wake up about an hour and a half before you normally would, stay awake for 30 minutes, go back to sleep, and that also ramps up your chances of having a lucid dream in the second part of your sleep. And so we, we combined the cognitive techniques with the wake back to bed, with the pharmacological intervention in a double-blind placebo-controlled study with a large number of people, and we found a huge effect of uh, the uh, pharmacological agent, which is galantamine. Uh, and it's an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, which means that it's getting rid of the enzyme, which gets rid of acetylcholine. And so it's a double negative. It actually the increases, or the, the net effect is that it increases the amount of acetylcholine during REM sleep, which is the main neurotransmitter in REM sleep. And so it's ramping up brain activation during REM sleep. The precise mechanisms about how it works and so on, or if the, if the effect even is cholinergically mediated are a little uh, uncertain right now. We need more, more work to understand really how it's working, but we know it has a very large effect on lucid dreaming. And so putting all those techniques together of the cognitive techniques with wake back to bed, with galantamine, uh, we were able to get people to have a lucid dream approximately 40% of the time in that last segment of sleep after returning to, returning to sleep. And this was in a sample of people, some of which had never had lucid dreams in their entire lifetime before. And so 40% is just a huge number. At a clinical level, we can really understand how lucid dreaming might help people we see with nightmares, recurring, distressing dreams. The area we don't work in is sort of consciousness and consciousness research. So what does lucid dreaming tell you about that area and insights into consciousness? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, I think this is one of the overlooked topics. People don't quite understand uh, how useful lucid dreaming is within this context, because what lucid dreaming essentially gives us is experimental control over the dream state. In ordinary dreams, you're just at the, at the whim and mercy of whatever happens. Uh, so if you want to study um, faces during sleep, you have to sit around and measure lots and lots and lots of dreams. Of course, faces is fairly common, so that's not a great example. Most people, you'll have a dream of a face. But for lots of research questions, you have to collect huge amounts of data and just hope that the content of, of interest appears by chance spontaneously in whatever people are dreaming about. Whereas with lucid dreaming, as I noted earlier, you can actually uh, have participants conduct experimental tasks in the dream state. They can invoke specific types of perceptual content. It's like you want to study uh, faces, face perception. You can have lucid dreamers specifically bring up a face and even timestamp the start and end of seeing a face with those eye movement signals. What it allows from the physiological perspective are these, using this eye signaling approach, are these very precise um, markers in the physiological record with specific types of psychological content. And that's been one of the major challenges of dream science now going back decades is this tricky task of you wake people up in the sleep laboratory and you get a re dream report about what they were experiencing before they woke up. But then how do you line that up with the physiology beforehand? It's actually very, very tricky. The eye signaling method with lucid dreaming is a very powerful approach for lining up the physiology with the psychology. And then also the ability to do experimental tasks. Just to give you one example, 
couple of years ago, we published a big paper in Nature Communications, which we looked at smooth pursuit eye movements across waking, imagination, and REM sleep dreaming. And this experiment was only possible to do with lucid dreamers. There's no way to do the experiment any other way. And this goes uh, into this large philosophical question about the nature of the imagery that we experience in dreams. It's been de debated for millennia, really. Is the nature of the imagery of dreams more like imagination or is it more like perception? And we were able to actually gather some objective data on this by having people trace the tip of their thumb. So they, they kept their eyes locked on the tip of their thumb, uh, again, during ordinary waking perception, and they traced a circle very slowly, again, keeping the eyes always locked on the thumb. They did the same thing during uh, trying to imagine that movement while awake, and they did the same thing in a lucid dream. Again, they're, they're tracing the tip of their dreamed thumb within the dream. And what we discovered was that the eyes move in a smooth, sustained pursuit we call it smooth pursuit in both dreaming and waking perception, but not in imagination. And so it really suggests that, that uh, the nature of the imagery of dreams is much more like waking perception than it is imagination. So this is just one example of the kinds of experimental tasks people can do, the kinds of questions you can pose within the neurosciences and psychology that are impossible any other way. So Benognus, I'm really curious um, around lucid dreaming and your thoughts on how it can help the kind of clients that we see with um, quite traumatic dreams. They've got very debilitating traumatic nightmares. And often we might talk to them around using a technique called imagery rehearsal therapy, which we ask them to practice certain imagery while they're awake to be able to change the ending of the dream during sleep. What are your thoughts on all your studies and all your knowledge? What are your thoughts on the these sort of clinical applications? I think we need a lot more research to understand what the potentials and, and possible limitations are. Um, but I think the, the largest clinical application is likely to be for the treatment of chronic idiopathic nightmares. In the United States, for example, it's a huge problem. I mean, it's, I think, over, it's between, somewhere between 5 and 10% of the American adult population suffers from nightmare disorder of one kind or another, and we're not sure why. Lucid dreaming has been often discussed for treatment of nightmares, um, but I think the real potential is often overlooked. So one of the things that you'll hear often is that lucid dreams can be used to terminate the dream. So if you're dreaming, if you're having a scary or frightening dream, you can just, oh, I know it's a dream, I'm out of here kind of thing. But I think the real potential of lucid dreaming comes into a therapeutic context where you can actually work with the psychological material in the context of working with a professional therapist, you can actually work with the imagery, like you were mentioning, you can work with the content in real time. And the experience of lucid dreaming is as if it's really happening. Dreams are so vivid, it's as if you're really having that experience. And so it can be an extremely powerful platform for working through certain scenarios, for working with content, for addressing characters, people that may be representations of real people in, in the real world, in your real life, possibly people that have done some psychological harm to you. A number of people who have worked with lucid dreaming and they've been able to cure themselves of having nightmares. So this is purely anecdotal at this point. Uh, there have been several small controlled trials though that have shown some preliminary effectiveness, but we really do need a lot more 
rigorous, large-scale research to see how effective this is going to be. Oh, Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been fascinating. We could actually talk for another long time, three hours. I'm sure you were just getting started. So, yeah, just want to say thanks very much for, for all that wonderful work. We'll hopefully get you back one day to talk, talk further. That would be great. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So that was really great, Moira. What were some of your reflections after interviewing Ben? Oh, it was great, wasn't it? Yeah, I didn't want to finish that. We had to sort of keep it as brief as we could. My take home, my reflections were that, gee, it's, a, it's an interesting area, a very niche area and exciting. There's certainly a lot more work that they're going to be doing for sure across the, the coming years and decades. In my clinical work, like for so many years now, talking to people about their sleep, like coming to see me as a clinician with their sleep problems, and I realised that I've only ever seen people who are having problems with their dreams as in, in a negative sense, like they're, they're, they're being distressed by it and hyper-aroused and really traumatised, whereas it was just it's really interesting to see this other body of work that may not, it's not around necessarily, you know, clinical distressing syndromes. Um, so that was, uh, that was uh, sort of an eye-opener for me. What about you? Yeah, it's really reinforced for me how little we really know about dreaming, the function of dreaming, consciousness, what is awake? And what is yeah, sleep? Yeah. And what are these states that yeah. have some features of each in between? And so, yeah, really interesting to hear how Ben um, is looking at using lucid dreaming, for example, is trying to tease out and answer some of those questions. So, yeah, really fascinating area of work. So, if people are looking for some more information, I can highly recommend Ben's paper, The Cognitive Neuroscience of Lucid Dreaming. In That was in Neuroscience Biobehavioral Reviews in 2019. It's actually open access, so free to read, and a really good, well-researched, well-referenced paper. I'll come back to, you know, I'm a big fan of J. Allen Hobson and his work and on dreaming and consciousness. And one of his books, The Dream Drugstore, really explores this as well, looking at the effect actually of drugs on consciousness and the dream state and what we can learn from that. I think we've talked about him before, haven't we? Have you mentioned him that book before? I have. There's more coming. What's the clinical tip for this episode, Dave? So reflecting on what Ben said, I think one of the things we didn't quite explore was the effect of state characteristics on dreaming and potentially on the lucidity of dreaming. At a personal level, I know I'm a bit more lucid in dreams if I'm a bit more stressed or if I've Mm. travelled across time zones when we used to travel, if I had jet lag. (laughs) And so in, in our clinical practice, we'll often see if people get a change in dreams, it means something to us. So dreams become more vivid, become more distressing, and you can often track that with background distress or background sort of sympathetic nervous system activation. And there is that relationship between where someone's sitting at a distress level and how vivid or distressing dreams can be. As in the, uh, it's all around the world at the moment, you know, the COVID, so-called COVID dreaming. Yeah, absolutely. So that's at at a clinical level. Think of it as someone's describing a change in dreams. It's going to reflect a change in circumstances and change physiology. It's often the clue if someone's saying to me, my dreams have changed, I'm going, okay, what else is going on? So Moira, what's your pick of the month? So my, my pick of the month is uh, a paper that's just been published just September 2021 uh, in the Annals of Physical and Rehabilitation Medicine. And it's with Jenny Ponsford's group, the PhD student Lucy Imer. Uh, CBT versus health education for sleep disturbance and fatigue um, in people having had a stroke or some kind of acquired brain injury. So it's really 
wonderful piece of work that's been um, highly recommend. We'll put it in the show notes, but it's a it's an eight week um, treatment program of CBT, and it's not CBTI. It's it's CBT for we call it CBT um, for sleep disturbance and fatigue. So CBT SF looked at how, just basic health education intervention as well, and of course the CBT was. Um, which is good to see that over and above basic health education was far more beneficial and there was really improved, you know, quality of life, quality and self-efficacy, increased confidence, learning how to pace themselves better and therefore just manage their fatigue, get better sleep quality. So I think people will be really interested in reading that. And for our listeners who may not really um, think about it, it's something we need to think about greatly around the, uh, the you know, the post-head injury that fatigue and sleep are very, very big problems and that we, that we do, do, do make you mindful of. What's your pick? So coming back to Jay Allen Hobson, actually, and the reason to talk about him is uh, Alan actually died in July at the age of 88 and mm. had an obituary in the New York Times, which really tells you about how influential he's been yeah. in the research area. And yeah. I learned a lot from him during my time in Boston. It was really a privilege to be able to and be in small groups and learn from him. And one of the things I liked about him is he challenged dogma. In the psychiatry yeah. world, he was one of the sort of main people challenging Freud's dogma about dreams and really boiling dreams down into a much more neuroscientific way of thinking about them rather than a dreams have meaning in that Freudian sort of way. Yeah. Uh, I really liked his book. He wrote a book a bit about his own personal um, sort of research journey called Dream Life, amongst his many other books around dreams. So yeah, I can highly recommend any of the books by J. Allen Hobson and yeah, a tribute, given that he's recently passed away. What else is coming up? What should we be looking out for in future episodes? So one of the things I want to have another episode and talk about is fatigue. We've already talked about chronic fatigue syndrome but I want to talk about some of the biological mechanisms underpinning fatigue and where the research is going in that area. There's been a really great workshop put together as a collaboration between the Sleep Research Society and the NIH Neuroscience Program uh, with a two-day program focusing on the biology of fatigue and trying to set research agendas going forward. And I participated in that workshop and we'll really try and bring some of that oh. together to discuss oh, some of that. So thanks so much for listening. Please send us any suggestions at podcasts at sleephub.com.au. We love to feature early career researchers and help people hear about their work. And if you like the podcast, review us on iTunes, subscribe and tell your friends and work colleagues about the podcast. Thanks a lot. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.